It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I am so excited that you are tuning in. We're continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, picking up in verse 19 here today. And, and this particular study has been really eye-opening already in just the first 18 verses, because I think what you have found is that you've been challenged already in how we avoid divisions in the church, that we need to be of one mind, that we need to worship God as one undivided peoples. We represent the body of Christ as this letter was penned to reprimand the church, to get the church back on proper heading. Uh, this particular section just continues in on, on how Paul is going to challenge us even further to, to avoid the wisdom of the world and to seek the truth and the wisdom that is found only in Almighty God, and to persevere in that, to to stand firm in truth. And so he picks up right here in verse 19, where he's quoting Old Testament scripture. Here's what he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now, this particular quotation comes from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. It specifically calls out the wisdom in the, of the wise, the wisdom of the wise. And, and Isaiah referenced the political shrewdness. And in fact, it, Paul applies it to this generically, if you will, to every form of human wisdom that exalts its own cleverness, that all human schemes that fail to take God into account will inevitably run aground. And we see that in Isaiah 30 verses 1 to 2, because Isaiah had mocked the failed scheming of the worldly wise Jerusalem politicians. They they were seeking the safety of Israel through their own clever scheming. And so they formed this alliance with Egypt that ultimately alarms the Assyrians and ultimately sparks an invasion, the very invasion they were seeking to avoid. So the prophet reminds them that God is the creator and humans are mere creations and God will turn things upside down, according to Isaiah 29:16. So God's rescue strategy opts for what appears to be weakness in this situation by allowing Jerusalem to become besieged and crushed before he rescues it. And often that it sounds like what the cross was. Uh, we, we talked about that last week. It was we were looking to the power of the cross, that it was even the revelation of the power of God. And many asked that question, well, how is that the power of God as his son was dying and being brutally crucified up there? And what they don't understand is that more than 300 prophecies were being fulfilled in that moment, all the way from Genesis chapter 3 forward, that God was making a way when there was no way that God was making hope a reality, fulfilling his promises to bring hope for mankind in the midst of hopelessness. And it was the power of God displayed right before our eyes, and especially the power to resurrect his son once more in defeat of death once and for all. So it was the power unveiled right before our eyes, and God set aside the cleverness of the wise. That's not how man would have done it. According to Proverbs 16, 
16, 9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. In Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So Paul illustrates the message of the cross with this specific story from history of the Hebrew people and how God works, especially in the terms of human redemption. They would have identified with that story. So God does not need the strategies and efforts of men to accomplish his plan of salvation. Why? Because he's an all-wise God, according to Romans 11, verse 33. So let's continue on. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Here's what we read. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? In verse 20 here, Paul launches into four rhetorical questions. He's speaking of the philosopher, the religious scholar, and even the debater. What do these three categories of persons have in common? Well, they're all perceived as professional experts. <laughs> and we love how God just proves them all wrong. God has not simply disregarded the wisdom of this world or shown it to be foolish. He has made foolish the wisdom of the world. So just think about this. None of us would have ever come up with the plan of salvation that God did. In our wisdom, we would have made it much more confusing, far more complex, and, and something that maybe was unattainable. I mean, you have to earn your way to heaven is what we would have devised. We would have devised some works-based salvation plan. And this is why we struggle in our hearts, ultimately, with Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, with the parable of the workers in the vineyard, that, that all the laborers will receive equally. But, but God designed a salvation plan free for all who receive it, available to all by sending his son to die for our sins, because our labors would never be enough to transform imperfection into perfection. And that's all that can be permitted into the presence of God forever and ever. We are told that there are 613 ordinances of the Torah commands. And James tells us that if we break one, we've broken them all. You can't have a blemish to enter into a perfect state. And so no matter how good we will be, we could present it all before God. And if there's one that is broken, it can never equate to perfection. This is why only the atoning blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient. And God displayed his own sheer genius in masterminding this plan of salvation, whereby he remained both just and the justifier, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 26. So if we had a million lifetimes to think and create a means by which a holy God could accept a sinful man, we would have never come up with the method of the cross as our salvation. So only the inscrutable wisdom of God could have thought of it. And God designed his as this whole plan of salvation in such a way that sinful man could not come to know him by human wisdom, which only exalts man. So God purposed to save lost sinners through a means that seemed utter nonsense to a wise world, and he devised the cross. In the cross, we see the wisdom of God most fully revealed. It's his infinite wisdom, and God designed a plan that in no way compromised his holiness or left his righteousness unfulfilled. It was perfect mercy on display. So God's wrath has been poured out on man's sin. All the while, 
His righteous demands have been met, and he is now free to receive sinners into his holy presence. He took the punishment of the full letter of the law upon himself that we might be saved. And this ought to just really blow our minds if we think about it. So please understand, Paul is not against knowledge here. God created us to be inquisitive, to investigate, to gather knowledge. The problem with fallen humanity apart from Jesus is that we still don't have a clue despite the knowledge we obtain. The the problem isn't with knowledge, it's with the wisdom that interprets and applies the knowledge. So items in the box are examining other items in the box and making determinations and preconceived notions without understanding all that lies outside that the confinements of the box. So, so we've got to recognize that our knowledge is limited, but God knows everything that can be known or could be known. So we need to entrust ourselves to him and recognize that he loves to humble those who call themselves wise by human standards, and he delights in bringing humans who exalt their power down to size. He, he seems to rather enjoy making wise men feel foolish, taking the prayers of one man to hold the sun from moving forward, for example, in Joshua chapter 10, verse 13, making the sun go backward while keeping the earth and the solar system completely intact, according to 2 Kings 20, verse 11, Isaiah 38, 8, and Hebrews eleven thirty four, even making ocean waters part while leaving dry ground under it, according to Exodus chapter 14, and then using floodwaters to stop an entire army of Judges 5.21, even calling 300 men to stand with no weapons against 135,000 men and giving them victory in Judges 7-8. He loves when the odds are stacked against him, even making an axe head float in 2 Kings 6, 1-7, or making a jar of oil and a jar of flour that never run empty for a widow in 1 Kings 17, 16, or even feeding 15,000 to 20,000 people with a meal that never stopped multiplying while being distributed in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13-21, to or even allowing a man to walk on water, according to Matthew 14, 22-31, the list goes on and on. Now, how many of you, if you're listening in and, and, and understand what I'm talking about here, maybe maybe you're one of those crossword pu- puzzle enthusiasts. You love a good crossword puzzle. I, I'm not necessarily that kind of guy. I appreciate a crossword puzzle, but my grandfather used to spend hours completing the puzzles in the newspaper each week. And I was always amazed at, at what he learned and how much he retained. He had all this knowledge. After all, he was an engineer. He worked for the Marathon Oil Company, and I was amazed at all of his knowledge and the answers that I would never be able to come up with. He just just randomly just pulled all this information like a Jeopardy uh, ace, you know, and, and he was a crossword puzzle master. And in a more profound sense of that, God has divided the ultimate crossword puzzle. The way of the cross is something that would never enter the thoughts of man. That's why those who are brilliant often struggle with the notion of the cross. It's God's ultimate crossword puzzle. Now, George Washington Carver 
Uh, he lived to 1943. He had a laboratory, and he named God's Little Workshop, and he would begin each day with a prayer that God would reveal secrets to him about plants and vegetables. And Carver shared the story that one day he prayed. He said, Dear Mr. Creator, please tell me what the universe was made for. God responded, ask for something more in keeping with that little mind of yours. So Carver tried again. He says, Dear Mr. Creator, what was man made for? Again, the Lord replied, Little man, you ask too much. Cut down the extent of your request and improve the intent. So the scientist tried once more. He says, Mr. Creator, will you tell me why the peanut was made? That's better, the Lord said. And beginning that day, Carver discovered over 300 uses for the lowly peanut. This reality is that all believers and unbelievers have peanut-sized minds. We are small and foolish, and God is immense and wise. And the sooner that we really understand this, the better off we're going to be. Now, Paul goes on further to making this point in 1 Corinthians 3, 18-21a. We'll read this later, but let's go and read it today here, put it in proper context. He says, "...let no one deceive himself." If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. Go back to Job 5.13 on that. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. You can read Psalm 94.11 on that. So therefore, let no one boast in man. So the way of the cross... It's a foolish message to those who are wise in their own mind, and it's designed to humble us and to help us glorify God for His wisdom and power. I remember the late R.C. Sproul used to say, men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they've contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Let's go on, 1 Corinthians 1, 21, we read, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, Paul explains for that God humbled the world by keeping those who were wise in their own eyes from knowing God. How do we know that? Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 17 tells us that. In fact, the the cross challenges everything of man's common sense. For rescue missions that are done purposely by God to filter out those who are only seeking their own agendas, God does something completely different. He changes the status quo. This doesn't make sense in what we deem as common sense. It's totally different than what man would devise. So God was pleased in doing that. So Paul means that God was sovereign over his own purposes. God doesn't want to share the glory with anybody, according to Isaiah 42.8, and he chooses a message that refutes the possible designs of men and gives him the most glory possible. Men would not have done it that way. So it makes sense for it to be from God. That in and of itself should bear witness to the fact that this whole plan of salvation is not of the minds of men. It, we, we just wouldn't have done it this way. It, it, we would have thought of something else. If, if only the wisest of men had the understanding of Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who said, if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot 
overthrow it, according to Acts 38 to 39. So why the cross? Why that way? All of this raises that question, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why not a heart attack or some other form of death? If that's what he needed to do was simply to die, why die in excruciating fashion on a cross? Well, Acts chapter 2 tells us it was all predetermined. Listen to this, Acts chapter 2, 23 to 24. Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, Galatians 3, 13 to 14, we read from the Apostle Paul, it tells us Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So this reflects on the theology of Deuteronomy 21:23, the law of Moses had a curse attached to it. If you failed in one point of the law, you failed the whole thing and came under the law's curse, according to Deuteronomy 27:26, Galatians 3:10, and James 2:10. So all of us qualify for the curse. That's a very bad thing. But but here's the good thing: Jesus took our curse. For us, by hanging on a tree in the same way that's described as hanging on that cross. In the Old Testament days, a person who committed a capital crime would be executed, usually by stoning. So, if the crime was particularly hideous, the crime would then be taken out on a tree. That person, that criminal, would have to be hung from a tree as the ultimate form, a symbol of disgrace and shame to make a statement to others. That's why it also serves as a warning to others. The central idea was to bring shame to the criminal and their cause. It it was obvious to all that a person who hung on a tree was thereby cursed. And so the Romans had a favorite method of execution for criminals, and they really wanted to punish and make a statement out of them. It was this thing called this crucifixion, and it was nailing the criminal to a cross made of wood, i.e. a tree, And a good example of the kind of criminal the Romans crucified was Barabbas. He was a thief, a revolutionary, and he was released by Pilate at Jesus' crucifixion, even though this man had led a rebellion against Rome and was considered even the worst kind of offenses even at that time. So the Romans didn't just want to execute Barabbas. They wanted to shame him and make him suffer untold agony, And, and both were accomplished when they would execute someone on a cross. So Jesus even took that place. So it was a symbol of shame. It, it had to be very bad to be crucified. And second, it was sometimes this, the crucifixion victims that they wouldn't just die right away. It was something that would take a great deal of time. It would take several days, in fact, for them to die. So the cross was a, a curse, and Jesus came under the curse of that cross. In his perfect state, he did this. He satisfied the curse of the law and made it possible that you and I would never have to suffer that curse. And some of the intellectuals may say, wait a minute, Deuteronomy 21-23 says he hung on a tree and Christ died on a cross. Is that just a stretch because they're both wood? So how do we know that the curse of Deuteronomy 21-23 being hung on a tree 
was the same as being nailed to a cross, because Acts chapter 5, verses 30 to 32 tells us that. Listen to this. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God was exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Yes, the cross was the ultimate form of murder on a tree. And thus the letter of the law was satisfied in Christ because he was perfect and his blood covers those he atones for. We read in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 24 now, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, these three verses then provide three different responses to the cross. The person can stumble, mock, or believe. The Jews stumbled over the cross because most of them were looking for the signs of power. They must have been from Missouri, maybe, the show-me state. <laughs> Jews' history, they were often filled with miraculous events, like the, the Exodus itself as it came out of Egypt, or even the days of Elijah or Elisha. So when Jesus was ministering on earth, these Jewish leaders repeatedly asked him to perform a sign from heaven, but he refused. It's because they were looking for a political leader who would deliver them from the heel of the Roman Empire. And of the 355 prophecies of Jesus Christ, the 44 that were key, speaking of his life, death, and resurrection, they could not imagine a crucified Messiah despite the words of Daniel chapter 9 and the prophet Micah. They were too fixated on the circumstances, frustrated by their oppression under the rule of yet another empire, so they set their eyes on the image of Jesus that they desired him to be, and, and one who would fulfill the words of these particular uh, of this prophecy of Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It says, There shall come forth a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab. And Haggai chapter 2, verses 21 to 22, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. So they were looking specifically for a Messiah who would come like a mighty conqueror and defeat all of their enemies. He would then set up his kingdom and return all the glory to Israel. And so this, this Messiah before them just wasn't the one that they had imagined him to be. I mean, just 40 years after Revelation was written, uh, prominent leaders uh, such as uh, Bar Kokhba, he was even declared to be the Messiah around 130 AD, even driving many Christians to disassociate themselves with Judaism as a result. He led a revolt against Rome in 132 AD specifically, and, and his messiahship, though doubted, many started to clamor him because he was giving them hope. And yet he was killed just three years later at the, at the Battle of Batar. So this, this was the final battle of the Third Jewish-Roman War that devastated Judea. And 28 leaders since him have come claiming to be the Messiah, and yet none of them fulfilling any of the prophecies. So it's hard for us to understand what the crucifixion meant to the Jews, 
that they had they were looking for this leader and they didn't realize that 355 prophecies were fulfilled right before their eyes all the prophecies that they had read time and time again were being fulfilled right underneath their noses and we've sanitized the cross and domesticated it we gold plated it and we wear it around our necks and we fail to understand that the word crucifixion is is the word where we get excruciating from they wouldn't have even spoken of it in polite company. And so to the Jews, this was like talking about Auschwitz. You wouldn't talk about the crucifixion or any crucifixion for that matter. It meant shame and disgrace. It meant oppression, despair, ruthless government. And that's why the Jews were often scandalized by the cross. They could not understand that method by which God would reveal his power. They could not see it as victory. So because the Jews were looking for power and great glory, they stumbled at the appearance of weakness on the cross, yet it was power on display. How could anybody then put their faith in this carpenter from Nazareth who died with this shameful death of the worst of criminals, and yet he claimed to be the son of God? They just couldn't put two and two together. The cross appeared to be weakness, and these men were desperate for strength. And so they simply could not see the greatest exhibition of strength the world has ever known that was right in front of them the whole time. So the Jews referenced here by Paul, they struggled to believe just as the people of Nazareth struggled to believe even to this day. Perhaps some of you even listening right now are struggling to believe. So how the people, how did the people of, of Nazareth treat Jesus? Well, you go to Mark 6, 1 to 6. They didn't deny his wisdom nor his mighty works, but rather they insulted him. They called him the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. And they were applying, they, it wasn't as if they didn't, they, they didn't know who his earthly father is, but what they were doing was disrespecting his whole family. So you have to understand here that this, this statement that's being made here was to ridicule him. To, to mock him as a leader. They called him a carpenter because they wouldn't call him the Messiah. So, so you read that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. They, they were not amazed at Jesus as some of us have stopped being amazed. They no longer bear the burden and smell of the blood of bulls and goats on the altars for our sins, and yet we don't fully grasp the magnitude of our sin and shame as a result that Jesus bore these things for us. We've become complacent treating the blood of the Savior as a common thing, and it's not a common thing. Its power has lost its luster, and, and shame on us for exhibiting such behavior. We need to stay amazed. Stay amazed. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, according to Psalm 150, verse 6. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, according to Psalm 118.22 and Matthew 21.42 and Acts 4.11. So Paul identifies with the Greek quest for wisdom, and we'll talk about that next. Next week, we'll get into that further as we evaluate the responses to the cross from every perspective. And I hope you've been encouraged, and I want you to stay amazed. Don't treat this as a common thing. Don't just push it aside. If you're listening and have been listening for weeks now, 
I, I know that God is prompting your heart. You are hearing these broadcasts for a reason. And I believe that as he tells us that he stands at the door and knocks, that he is knocking on your heart right now. Maybe you've become a complacent believer. Maybe the fire is not there and you need a spark once again, a kick in your step to be reminded to whom you serve, Jesus Christ our Lord. And he is coming soon. Will he find us ready? Will he find us busy? doing the work that he has called us to do. For those of you who are unbelievers and you've been listening faithfully and you're still taking it all in, maybe you just caught part of this broadcast and you want to learn more, go to calvaryfountain.com right now. You can listen to previous broadcasts. You can reach out to us, contact us. We'd love to hear from you and talk about the gospel message, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the only hope for this world. Again, I hope you've been encouraged. Check us out at calvaryfountain.com. Services are on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. God bless you, my friends.